Revelation chapter 6. In an incident that is recorded in the three synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, um, Jesus is walking away from the temple, and his disciples call out to him, and, and they, they point out, and they're trying to get his attention to just the magnificence of the buildings there. And Jesus then tells them, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The disciples later asked Jesus privately, Tell us when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I begin with this incident because I think it is important for where we are now in our study of the book of Revelation, for at least three reasons. First of all, it shows the human tendency to ask the wrong questions. Secondly, the answers to the right questions are the basis of worship. And thirdly, the statements that Jesus made in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, I would argue, are exactly in line with what we are going to see today in Revelation chapter 6. It's interesting. The three Gospels have this event recorded. John doesn't in the Gospel of John. But John actually does here in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Let's talk about the tendency to ask the wrong questions. I mentioned this last week. When you consider the incident that I've just mentioned, it just seems that the disciples haven't asked the right question. After all, if what Jesus is saying is true, wouldn't a more appropriate question be, why are these things going to happen? Why is the temple going to be destroyed why would God allow such a thing to happen? Instead, they want to know when. As I mentioned last week, this continues after the resurrection. One might think, you know, after the resurrection, they, the disciples might see a little bit more clearly. But they ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus just tells them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Don't ask when. It is the wrong question to ask. He goes on to say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That is, don't be concerned about the when. Be concerned about the why. Jesus came, he lived, he taught, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected in order that he might give the gift of the Spirit so that they could be witnesses of him. But lest we be too hard on the disciples, I suspect that we are exactly like them. We want to know when things are going to happen in the future, what the signs are leading up to those things. It is the wrong question to ask. And I think we might have a hint that it is the wrong question to ask when we see that the questions we ask don't lead us to worship. They don't lead us to praise and adoration of God. I do find it striking, and I mentioned this last Sunday, that the why question usually comes up during times of crisis. And again, they don't lead us to worship. In fact, if anything, they can lead us away from God. Because we question, why did God allow this to happen? Does God love me? Is God wise? Does he know what he's doing here? 
ultimately we might ask, is God good? Those questions don't often lead us to worship. The second reason why I've started with Matthew 24 is the answers to the right questions are the basis of worship. And as we've seen in our studies in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, John is called into the presence of God, the one who sits on the throne, so that God may show him what is going to happen. So John is, in fact, going to be able to see the future. He is going, from God's perspective, to see the things that are going to happen. But fascinatingly, here is John in the place where you get to see the future, and that doesn't seem to be the focus of what is going on. Instead, the focus is that of praise. We have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and they are worshiping the one who sits on the throne. As we've seen, the four living creatures represent God's creation. The 24 elders represent the new creation, the church, God's people. But all, the old creation, the new creation, have one focus, and that is to worship God. And their worship is, in a sense, response, a response to the question, why? Why should we worship God? They're in the presence of God. Why should they worship God? Because he is holy, holy, holy. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. In chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we find five expressions of praise. All of them are poetic in nature, and if you have an NIV and some of the newer translations, you'll see that the rest is sort of prose, but then these parts are set uh, as poetry. Uh, The margins are different. The first and second expressions of praise are directed toward God the Father, the one who sits on the throne. The third and fourth are directed to the Lamb, that is, God the Son, the one who is worthy to open the scroll. The final expression is to both him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all of these expressions answer the question, why should God be worshipped? Why should the Lamb be worshipped? And the answer is, because they are worthy. The first and the last expressions deal with God's eternality, but the middle three explicitly deal with the fact that God is worthy. If you look at chapter 4, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Chapter 5, verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. Chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Why are we to worship God? Because he is holy, he is eternal, he is the creator. And why are we to worship the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he gave his life. He is the lamb that was slain. You will notice that in the third and the fourth expressions of praise, which deal with the lamb, prominent is the fact that Jesus was put to death. In fact, John is told, don't worry, stop crying. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to take care of things. He is overcome and John turns and he sees a lamb which has been slain. And and this lamb that was slain is the, the line of the tribe of Judah who has overcome, who has triumphed. And how did he do that? Through his death. So the right questions lead to worship. The wrong questions, I think, lead us away from God. 
Thirdly, the third reason why we begin with Matthew 24 is because what we find here in chapter 6 is in fact what we find in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. In the beginning of chapter 5, we saw last week that John sees that there is a scroll by the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. Uh, It has writing on both sides. This is very unusual in the ancient world, but for people who know the Old Testament, they say, oh yes, the Ten Commandments, they were written on both sides of the stone. Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw a scroll written on both sides. Both were documents given by God to men. So this scroll is something that God is going to give to John for John to be able to understand what is about to happen. The problem is, it is sealed with seven seals, which in John's time, everyone like, well, of course, it's a last will and testament. That's how they did it in those days. The problem is, the custom was, you had to have the witnesses who did the seals, they had to open them. And no one can open the seven seals. No one in heaven, no one on earth is worthy to do this. But then we are told that the Lamb is. He is the one who is worthy. He's the mediator. He's the mediator of the covenant, the last will and testament. I have argued that the seven seals are sanctions, and we will see them as we go along. In the Old Testament, God is very clear. He made a covenant with his people. And he says, if you do not keep this covenant, these are the things that will happen to you. In modern terms, it's a contract. You're supposed to finish a project. If you don't finish by such and such a day, there will be penalties. There will be sanctions. These seven seals are the sanctions against those who have not kept God's covenant. Just to remind you, I think the book of Revelation is not a code book. It isn't a this for that, oh, this equals that. I think it's a lot more fluid than that. The purpose of Revelation, I think, is to evoke a response from us, not to give us a road map as as to where we're going, but rather to evoke a response from us. And by the way, the, the response that God wants from us is worship. That is how we are to respond to the book of Revelation. While this letter, the book of Revelation, is written to the seven churches in Asia, the events described in chapter 6 and beyond don't necessarily happen in Asia, but rather in Palestine, because John is going to describe the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. An event so cataclysmic that it was necessary to prepare God's people for it. For them... The world is turned upside down with the destruction of Jerusalem. John is given this vision so that he can prepare God's people. Jesus did this with his disciples in Matthew 24, where he told them, listen, see this beautiful temple? Pretty soon it's not going to be here anymore. And he sought to prepare his people for that. There are seven seals But the seventh seal leads to seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet leads to seven bowls. We will see that as we go along. So we're looking at six seals today in chapter six. These six things, we can just sort of take them out and move them over to Matthew 24, and they match exactly. The things that Jesus told his disciples, they they said, when is this going to happen? 
Jesus didn't tell them when it was going to happen. He told them the what was going to happen. And what was going to happen is there would be war. There would be international strife, that is, international wars as well as civil wars. There would be famine, pestilence, persecution, and earthquakes. That's what we will see today here in chapter 6. Just a, sort of a side note as we jump in. The first four belong together, the first four seals. This happens with the trumpets and, and the bowls as well. Um, the matter of the seals, the first four have come to be known traditionally as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Sort of come into a popular culture. Let's read, uh, beginning in verse number one, uh, the first two verses here in Revelation 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. As the Lamb opens each of the first four seals, one of the four living creatures will say, Come. And then will appear a horse, and on the horse will be a rider. And we are, we are told first about the horse, and then we are told about the rider. The first horse is a white horse. We will see in a bit. The second is red. The third is black. The fourth is pale, actually green. We will see that in a bit. The idea of four horsemen is not, it's not new with John. He didn't make this up. He didn't come up with this. It actually comes from the book of Zechariah. It comes from the Old Testament from Zechariah chapter 6. It's also mentioned in Zechariah chapter 1, but I think chapter 6 is uh, the connection here. The, the horse colors are different. They're given in different orders. Um, the purpose is the same. They are sent from the presence of God and they are to bring judgment on those who have oppressed God's people. In the Old Testament, it was the people of Judah. Here, the people of God are the church. And so the Lamb opens the first seal. It isn't simply a seal, it is a sanction. Judgment now comes. It is a white horse. The rider on it was given a bow and a crown. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Interestingly enough, of all the issues here, this is the one that sort of gets the most attention, the most disagreement. Because some people think that this rider on the horse is the Antichrist. Other people say, no, 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 it's actually Jesus Christ himself. Because later on in the book of Revelation, when we get to chapter 19, we will see another white horse, and the one on that white horse is called Faithful and True. And we know that that's Jesus. Um, I think what helps, and this is something, if you've been with me for any time, you know, it always helps to look at something in its totality. So rather than simply looking at one horse, we need to look at the four horses. And I think if we look at the four horses together, we see that they are messengers sent by God to accomplish his judgment. I don't think that the rider of the first horse is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first rider is one who represents conquest. Those nations that go out who are bent on conquering and subduing other people. Now we come to the second seal. Verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. 
Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. This rider represents violence. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, you will hear wars, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It's fascinating that the second writer does not bring war as much as he takes away peace. And when he takes away peace, then we have people killing each other. Now we come to the third seal in verse number five. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This rider represents economic hardship. It's demonstrated in the price that is given for grains. A quart of wheat is what was considered normal for one person for one day. We know that during that time a soldier, his ration was one quart of wheat per day. We also know that one day's wages, a denarius, was what the average laborer made. So here we have a one-to-one correspondence. You have a quart of wheat for one day's wages. There's only one problem. At the time that John writes this, a quart of wheat cost one-eighth of a denarius. That is, you'd get eight quarts for a denarius. So we're talking about an 800% inflation rate. We get nervous in this country when when inflation gets up to double digits. If we had 10% inflation rate, people would be really worried. What about 800%? It is the economic hardship that will come on the people of Judah when the Romans come in, surround the city of Jerusalem, and lay siege to it. It is interesting, I don't know if you caught it there, uh, that the oil and the wine are not to be touched. Technically speaking, a person doesn't need olive oil or wine to live. They're nice, but you don't necessarily need them to stay alive. You need, you need bread. In other cultures, you need rice. You don't need the oil and the wine. But these are not to be touched. And historically, we are told that when the Romans came to Jerusalem, the order was given by Titus himself. Don't touch the vineyards. Don't touch the olive groves. They destroyed the city. I mean, they ruined Jerusalem. But they didn't touch the olive groves. And they didn't touch the vineyards. Now the Lamb opens the fourth seal. Verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. It's a pale horse. that Most translations have it that way. Not Exactly sure why, because the word in Greek is the word chloros, like chlorophyll in plants. It means green. 
it's very possible because, you know, today, if you get sick, uh, if, you know, if you, your stomach is really upset, people will say, well, you know, you look a little green. Um, that in Greek culture, the expression was the same. That when someone was not in good health, they would say, well, you know, you're looking a little green there. And so the translators have thus made it pale. Um, maybe it's because we've never seen a green horse, um, that they're uncomfortable with that. In any case, this case, this horse represents someone who brings death and the grave with him. This writer represents, I think, the consequences or the effects of the previous three. War, your know, conquest, the absence of peace, people killing each other, economic hardship, a famine. And what happens when those things happen? People die. People die in wars, and people die as a result of famine. Let me read you a verse from Ezekiel that may sound familiar. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much, more, how much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague? But we have to stop a minute because for some people this seems very ungodlike to bring such a devastation. Why would God do such a thing? Remember, we're talking about the seals. God made a covenant with his people. If you are my people, if you obey, then these are the things I will give you. If you disobey, these are the sanctions. And this is what is being described here. By the way, there's a wonderful psalm. Many of the psalms are wonderful, but Psalm 46. One of my favorite psalms. But there's a verse in, right in there, a line in there that I think we sort of skip over when we're reading. Come and see the works of the Lord, the devastations he has brought on the earth. Oh. It's not something we normally associate with the work that God does. But he is bringing judgment. Now we come to the fifth seal, which the first four, as we saw the four horsemen, they're sort of in a separate category by themselves. Now we sort of move on to something else. Uh, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had been maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Something should be evident to us as, as we read this, and that is that the judgments, the seals, are not chronological. And we shouldn't think of them as such, like first seal, okay, this happens first, and then this happens afterwards. Because if that were the case, then the fifth seal should have been the first one. Because they're like, how long, O Lord, until you judge? Well, we've just seen four seals of judgment. Judgment's happening. The, the intent is not to give us a chronology, but rather the effect. The why God is doing what he is doing. Why judgment is coming. You cannot violate a covenant with God and do so with impunity. There are real consequences. We've seen them and we will see more as we go along. 
In the meantime, God's people suffer persecution. Some will suffer death. This is what John sees when he sees the fifth seal opened. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The image is from the Old Testament. If you know the sacrificial system, there were two altars. One is inside the temple or inside the tabernacle, right in front of the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. But the other one is out in the courtyard. In the inside, they burn incense. Outside, this is where they sacrifice animals. I think somehow in our minds we have sort of sanitized the whole issue of the sacrificial system. But, you know, in order to sacrifice an animal, you have to kill it. You have to shed its blood. You have to get the blood out of it before you put it on the altar. What do you do with the blood? They would pour it at the base of the altar. And what John sees is, if you wish, the blood of the martyrs, sort of at the foot of the altar. Those who have died for the faith. They are pictured in John's mind like the blood of sacrificial animals that have been put at the bottom of the altar. I find it worth noting that in chapter 8, John will mention an altar again, but there he's very specific. It's the golden altar in front of the throne. Here he just throws the word out, altar. Um, I think it's deliberate. I think John wants to give us a certain leeway, a certain ambiguity. I think he also wants us to remember the words of Jesus from Matthew 23. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem, to the religious leaders. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come on this generation. As one writer puts it, if the martyr's blood is flowing around the base of the altar, it must be the priests of Jerusalem who have spilled it. The officers of the covenant have slain the righteous. As Jesus and the apostles testified, Jerusalem was the murderer of the prophets. So John sees the martyrs there, the souls of the martyrs, and he hears them, and they are crying out to God, how long, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? This is a phrase found throughout the Old Testament. It is a standard phrase. Someone who knows the Old Testament would, would immediately recognize what John is doing. It is a phrase used to invoke God's justice. When there is injustice, God's people call for justice, and they do so by saying, how long? Interestingly enough, they don't say when, they simply say how long. How long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And again, for some, this would seem very unchristian. After all, aren't Christians supposed to turn the other cheek? Why would we ask God to avenge us? Aren't we just supposed to sort of be doormats and let people walk over us? After all, the martyrs were put to death. On, on some level, that almost implies passivity. Why are they now calling for vengeance? In reality, what they are doing is calling for what is right and rejecting what is wrong. 
It is said that for the only thing that is needed for evil to prosper is for good people to keep silent. The martyrs are not keeping silent. They know what is right. They know what is wrong. And what is wrong is they have been put to death for the word of God and their testimony. And they recognize that it is in God's hands to make things right. And so they say to God, how long until you make things right? And how does God answer them? Does he tell them when this is going to happen? Not really. First of all, he gives them a white robe. He gives to each of them a white robe, which is given to those who are God's people, those who are overcomers, we saw in chapter 3. And then he tells them to wait a while longer until the number of martyrs is completed. Well, that's not what I was expecting to hear. Was that what you were expecting? Uh, just wait. Um, more people will be joining you. Okay? Some more Christians have to be killed till we get that whole number. Just stay there you know, under the altar. When all the Christians who have been martyred, who are supposed to be martyred, when that happens, then I will, in fact, take vengeance. Well, I think we are reminded of what we started out with. We should not ask, when will that be? That is in God's hands. But secondly, everything is in God's hands. And not just the small stuff, by the way. Like getting to work on time because of bad traffic. You know, those things, God can... I need, I need to get to work. No. The life and death issues. Of people who are senselessly killed. People who are killed because of the gospel. I remember asking you about this time last year. When we were looking at the issue of war. Do we want God to make things right? Do we expect justice from God? Yes, we do. And the martyrs are asking God, when will there be justice? And he says, just wait a while longer. And now we come to the sixth seal, beginning in verse number 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The language here is pure Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament prophetic writings, you should feel very, very comfortable here. Let me read to you from the book of Nahum. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce wrath? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. 
the language here, I think, has thrown people because they're looking for a, a direct connect this for that sort of a secret code of what this means. First of all, it's not literal. Because if the stars, if one star were to fall to the earth, it would destroy the earth because stars are much larger than the earth. Instead, I think we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible to understand what is being said here at the end of the Bible. What John is describing has been called decreation. God is the creator. And interestingly enough, those who become God's people are described in terms of new creation. I think one of the first verses I learned as a child going to Sunday school after John 3.16 was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So on the one hand, as people become God's people, as they are obedient, their existence is described in terms of creation, of God creating them, new creation. What about those who turn away from God, those who reject him? Their existence is described as decreation. And in fact, if you look at it, it's sort of it's sort of Genesis 1 in reverse. God is ripping up the fabric of reality. For those who turn their back on him and the lamb, the world is over. The great earthquake, which points to destabilization. The sun is turned black like sackcloth, which is used for mourning. The whole moon is turned blood red, like blood red. It speaks of defilement. The stars fall to the earth. Time has run out. You know, you picked all the figs, but you left some on the tree, and a strong wind comes, and they fall. That's it. End of story. It is the end for these people. The sky is receded. It's rolled up like a scroll, and every mountain and island is removed from its place. The old creation, the old covenant is set aside, and the new is put in its place. If you look at creation, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we have the sun, the moon, the stars. We have the firmament. And then we have land. We have human beings that are created. And the seventh part of this are the human beings. And if you look, beginning in verse number 15, seven types of people, seven classes of people are mentioned. And again, I think it's just speaking of the totality of humanity. Uh, kings, princes, generals, rich Mighty, slave, free, all who have rejected the Lamb will seek to hide from him, from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. There's so much we could say about this, and the Lord willing, we will continue next week. Don't you find it ironic? They want to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. I don't know that I've actually ever touched the lamb. I've seen lambs. They're not particularly scary. I don't think of wrath when I think of a lamb. Something else must be going on here. Lord willing, we will see it. 
I want to close by reminding you of something that happened as Jesus was being taken to be crucified. I think we're very familiar with the story, but I think there's a little part that oftentimes we don't read or we sort of skip over. Luke includes it in his account in Luke 23. A large number of people followed him, that is Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. One can just imagine the sight. Jesus is being taken to be put to death. And people are wailing. Women are mourning because he is going to be put to death. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. It's just what John said. What Jesus was speaking about is what John was speaking about. It's something that happened in the first century A.D. Something that for us, you know, as Americans, we're not really into history, certainly not ancient history. Most have forgotten about. But God poured out his judgment against his people, those who broke the covenant. Jesus told them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't, don't weep for me. Something horrible is going to happen to you. And people will call on the mountains to cover them. This is what John sees as he sees the first seals unsealed. Just one thing before we go. I'm really struck by what God says to the martyrs. It's just not what we expect. We expect to be affirmed. We expect God to say, I will take care of it. He will take care of it, but that's not what he says. He says, just just wait a while longer. There are more people who still have to die. More Christians still have to be put to death for the faith. John's readers needed to hear this. Because some of them would be joining the martyrs. Some of them would be put to death for their faith. And they needed to know that God was in control. He knew what was going on all along. This is his world. And as we sang earlier, that even though sometimes the wrong seems so strong, God is still in control. He is the ruler still. Let's pray together. Our Father, we must confess that we are uncomfortable with the idea of you as judge. I suppose we can handle you as judge, but handing out judgments so severe, so harsh. In our minds, we've created an entirely different picture of you. Help us to see that you stand for what is right, for what is just. And vengeance does not belong to us because it belongs to you. 
you will one day make all things right. And we need to know that. And when things happen that seem so senseless, that seem to have no purpose, great violence, the degrading of humanity, lives lost, lives ruined, may we be assured, may we remember that this is your world. You know exactly what's going on. All things are in your hands, including our very lives. I thank you for this time that we could spend together today, worshiping you. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? It's the inside leaf of the hymnal. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.